Jerron Young. Hey. Give me a name. James Baldwin. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. There was no episode last week because I had COVID. I may have been patient zero for Omicron. Well, probably not, but I'm going to keep saying that to get some buzz for the podcast. James Baldwin, born August 2nd, 1924, in Harlem, New York. He is one of the most famous American writers of the 20th century. Essays, poems, and of course, novels. Mm -hmm. And I feel like over the past 10 years, of all the 20th century black authors, he's kind of come up almost, has like the biggest resurgence. Yeah. Even more than like Ellison Mm -hmm. or Richard Wright. Like, I feel like Baldwin is, has been talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I think it's also because it, like his his shit feels like really timeless. Like if I read like the fire next time, like if a lot of the shit that not just not just what he was writing about, but a lot of his insights feel like they could be applied to today too. I think like I like Richard Wright a lot too, and they were actually like really close at some point. But like I think Richard Wright, it's there's like a little bit. There's also like a little bit of like socialist and like a little bit of like socialist leanings and and talks about that, which I guess is relevant now too. But I, I think. I think Baldwin is just more like he's 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 as political, but I don't know. He's a better writer too, so I feel like it's a lot more like human. Yeah, yeah. And he also talks well. Richard Wright, also one of the most famous black authors of the 20th century, is kind of the reason why James Baldwin moves to France. Yeah, and it's a weird thing because Wright was already famous. Yeah, and he was living in France. Yeah, and kind of takes Baldwin under his wing. Mm-hmm. But then Baldwin writes... Totally shits on him. Like, just shits on his writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shits totally on uh, one of Wright's most famous books, Native yeah, Son. Yeah. And he just, like, doesn't like the representation mm-hmm. of the main character yeah. in the book. Yeah, and completely trashes kind of... Uh, he calls it, like, protest novels. Completely trashes, like, what Richard Wright is, like, trying to do in the book. And they have a huge falling out about it. Which is a, it's a bold move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to just be like, oh man, thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for teaching me. Thank you for mentoring me. Now I'm just going to shit on everything that you do. <laughs> uh, so Baldwin grew up in Harlem. A lot of his books revolve around Harlem, even though he's, he does write about the South. He mm-hmm. does write about Europe. But city race relations mm-hmm. seems to be, I mean, I, I would say is like one of the major of, themes. Yeah, a lot of it is. Yeah, especially in like Fire Next Time, it definitely is. And I guess Note of a Native Son, yeah, he talks about the New York riots. Right. So, yeah. He never knew his biological father. Yeah. Raised by his mother and his stepfather. And he always refers to the stepfather as his father. Mm-hmm. But he sounds like a super abusive yeah guy. yeah very strict i guess just very rigid i think baldwin talks about like having to protect his like younger like he basically like fathered his like younger siblings he's like protected them from had to protect them from his stepfather and, and like, hated his stepfather apparently and the stepfather was a preacher mm-hmm. and i guess partly because of that baldwin kind of has a religious awakening when he's mm-hmm. very young yeah he starts preaching when he's 14 yeah and for three years it sounds like the stepfather was pissed because Baldwin was a better yeah, definitely. preacher. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at any of the YouTube clips of Baldwin speaking, and yeah. there's, there's a million of them, it's great, mm-hmm. online, yeah. he's like one of the most eloquent. Oh, like, yeah. Hell yeah. And always like the most eloquent person in the room. 
Yeah. And sometimes like the funniest too. Like it's it's while watching like clips of him. There's like a there's like clips of him just like the this doc like meeting the man. There's just clips of him like drunk, <laughs> kinda drunk and smoking sick. He's still like fucking eloquent as hell, like when he's tipsy, <laughs> man. Like it's kinda wild. But he's like loose and he's just like talking shit and it's it's fun, man. He's just witty and yeah, it's cool. And he also is like passionate at the right moment. So there's a famous debate between him and William F. Buckley. Yeah. Who is kind of started the national review was kind of like mm-hmm. the main uh, or one of the main representatives of the conservative movement yeah. in the 60s yeah. and they have this debate at Cambridge University mm-hmm. in the mid 60s yeah. and the topic is whether the american dream was created at the expense of african americans mm-hmm. baldwin says yes but buckley says no yeah. but it's one of these like incredible you know each gives like kind of a speech there's no mm-hmm. but one of these incredible you know just kind of See, I mean, it seems off the cuff. I mean, yeah. obviously it's not. Yeah. But it's like it's insane series of, yeah. um, you know, insanely smooth mm-hmm. uh, delivery. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an, like an amazing back and forth. And I mean, I think one of the craziest things and like one of the coolest things about James Baldwin, man, is he brought it like anywhere. Like he like that that place is like there were like barely any black people there. And there were probably the majority of the people there probably thought like William F. Buckley. But by the end of it, he was getting like a, 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 like a applause breaks and like standing ovations for everything that he was saying. It's weird seeing just the sea of white people exactly. in the background. And they all look the same. Like it's all the same. A sea of the same white dude stand up. <laughs> all these, and it's Britain too. Yeah, yeah, so it's like man. not even in America. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, he wins. Yeah. I mean, they actually do vote at the end. And yeah. I think he wins by like an overwhelming majority. Yeah, man. If you watch Buckley's speech, I don't even quite know what he's talking about i don't either man he's very smug it seemed like he didn't really take it seriously he's like super smug and kind of like i don't know like really smug and really dismissive and it almost seemed like he just he went in he went in it's interesting he kind of went in knowing that the deck was stacked which it was in a way but he got destroyed in this debate he just wasn't expecting Baldwin to be as sharp as he was yeah there are a few moments in that speech that i think are really powerful one that has become pretty famous is when he's talking about american western movies Mm -hmm. and he's saying growing up he's rooting for yeah the gary cooper type character and then he's like at some point in a black person's childhood they realize that they're not (laughs) the gary cooper character (laughs) they're the native americans (laughs) exactly yeah yeah so that's one of the most famous at that point in his career. I know uh, jumping ahead, but like that's after the fire next time, which you mentioned fire next time is published in 1963. And it's that book along with some of his earlier novels that makes him into a huge celebrity. Yeah. So he's not a writer that's like um, ignored during his time, at no. least not in the middle of his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, he had been, he had gone to France, published go tell it on the mountain. And then I think something else, but I don't remember what it was. And then, uh, and then I think uh, Fire Next Time came out. Yeah, and it, it completely, completely blown up. I mean, I think I think one of the big things about him was that he was very good at being very honest about what was happening, but also being very optimistic because I, I he kind of swam in like a lot of different worlds. Like he was best friends with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Right. Like that's like kind of a why. And like Mal- and them at their most radical. There's a point where they kind of converge and they they admit that they each have points. But like at the point where they're the most polarized that they'll ever be, you know. And he could he could swim in both of those worlds. I think it's interesting too that he, on the one hand, he belongs to every world, and on the mm-hmm. other hand, he belongs to kind of no world. Yeah. A lot of the reason why is because he's gay. Yeah. And that 
especially with Martin Luther King, seems mm-hmm. to make him at least, as you said, he's definitely friends with Martin Luther King. But yeah. there's, it seems like a, there's a bit of a distance there, probably because he's gay. Yeah, I mean, I think with the civil rights movement in general, they were very like protective of the image, you know? It's the same thing as like with Rosa Parks, like not being the first person to not move when a white person asked her. She was just the first person that was like socially acceptable. Mm. You know what I mean? To to start a movement like that. So I, they were very protective over like their image and like what they, same thing with like Bayard Rustin, who was also gay and like a great thinker in that time, was also kind of alienated by the civil rights movement. James Baldwin actually was supposed to speak at the March on Washington, but they, they didn't let him because he's gay. Yeah, like last minute, we're like, no, you can't. Also, he probably he probably would have said some crazy shit, <laughs> but uh, but uh, <laughs> but but they but they didn't they didn't let him speak. Well, I think also if you're King, you know, obviously King's speech is the most famous from the March on yes. Washington. Yeah, Baldwin's not like a supporting role. Oh yeah, hell yeah, kind of yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 <laughs> like yeah, it yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. I, yeah, that'd be like a dope lineup, though. Like that'd be like a banger, a banger showcase. Like, oh, stack, yeah, yeah stack lineup, man. Yeah, you don't know who that liner <laughs> exactly. is. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you got John Lewis opening. <laughs> you got Baldwin and King fighting over headlining. Yeah, it's just it's like, too, they, yeah. they both think they're the headliner. <laughs> yeah, they fight afterwards. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, Baldwin afterwards is like, oh man, he whipped out that I have a dream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damn, I can't believe you did. I had a dream. Ah, <laughs> He's doing the new stuff. He's killing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so to go back to his childhood just for a second, he has a few relationships with white people early in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a teacher named Orilla Miller. Yeah. And Baldwin starts writing when he's very young. He Mm -hmm. writes a play when he's 10 years old. And Arilla Miller, I guess, is kind of nurtures this ability, Mm -hmm. wants to take him to plays and like, you know, see art and sort of just foster his natural abilities. Mm -hmm. Baldwin's father like freaks out when Miller first comes to their house. And there are a few incidents like this that Baldwin recounts of like him interacting with white people and the father being like, yeah very very pissed off about yeah it. yeah i mean you know it's also uh i think that is i think there's a little bit of everything in it it's kind of like wanting him to know what the world is like and not to be naive you know he's like you don't trust white people <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. and then also also i think there is like a like the fear of you being you know he's already he already notices that this person, that this kid is like intelligent. He's probably smarter than everybody in his house at this point. Like he's just hyper, hyper intelligent. And it's probably also just not wanting to have the house taken over by this kid. Yeah. Probably an insecurity there too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So the father dies when Baldwin is 19. As you said, Baldwin is already kind of taking care of Mm -hmm. his younger siblings. And now he's like officially. Yeah. And even though Baldwin doesn't have any kids, he is like a, a very responsible kind of brother and uncle mm-hmm. when he grows up. Yeah. And he goes to DeWitt Clinton High School mm-hmm. in the Bronx. Yeah. Which is one of these crazy high schools in New York where if you look at their alumni, mm-hmm. it's like it's crazy. a stacked yeah. lineup. Yeah. I did an episode with Michael Good on uh, Stan Lee. Stan Lee also oh, DeWitt really? Clinton High School. And I looked it up. He intersected with James Baldwin. Oh, wow. So at one point, James Baldwin is walking the same high school with that's, Stan Lee. That's pretty wild, man. That's so cool. Yeah, no, I, did, I didn't know a lot about that school. But yeah, that's, that's a pretty wild fact. As we said, so he gets involved with the church. At about 17, 
when he's like already this very successful preacher, he gets kind of disillusioned with the church and his relationship Mm -hmm. to religion, both Christianity and Islam, Mm -hmm. when he encounters Elijah Muhammad and, and Malcolm X is kind of, he sees the benefits of how it can help the civil rights movement, but he is ultimately, I think kind of an atheist. No, I don't, I don't know if he was an atheist. I think he was, I think he was like a person who was just kind of like, uh, he only saw, he kind of saw how, he saw like the worst parts of religion as well. So I think he was just more of like a, I don't know. I think he was just more, I think to me, it seemed like he's more of just like a spiritual person as opposed to like, I forget, like there's a Muhammad Ali quote, like the only religion is the religion of the heart. And I think that's like, I think that's kind of more where he was. Because I don't, I've never, I've never read anything where he was like, explicitly said that he didn't believe in god he just thought that like if it if it wasn't a it didn't always seem like a useful concept i guess right and he see yeah so maybe one of those were like the not not so much the the church or like the organizations that are part of it yeah but the belief in god like yeah as you said spirituality yeah yeah more of like a spirituality because i think i don't know or i mean he could he could be he talks i mean it seems like his religion i guess not to be like hokey about it but his religion was like love i guess right not to be you know yeah yeah, man he just believed in love but like you know people say that shit all the time and it's very like it can be very hokey or very like uh new age or like hippy dippy but like i do think he like really practiced loving people and wanting the best for people while being able to tell the truth like i think that's part of where his truth telling came from was if i love you i'm going to tell you the truth right all the time you know so he's writing during this time period. As we said, he Richard Wright inspires him to go to France. He lives in France for the majority of his life. Yeah. Different areas of it. He ends up in the French Riviera, but he comes back to America and he's going to write a lot about America. I mean, that's really the bulk mm-hmm. of his writing, mm-hmm. but he is an expatriate writer. Like yeah. he really is. And I think part of it is probably the idea of not wanting to be known just as a black writer, but mm-hmm. just a writer kind of in general. Mm-hmm. And he writes a few essays. There's one essay in particular, which I think is from Notes of a Native Son, which is 1955, where he writes about writing in a small town in Switzerland Mm -hmm. and just this idea of being seen as the other, Mm -hmm. especially in he's like in some remote town with like 100 people in it or something like that. And clearly is the first black person that any of them have seen. Yeah. And just kind of writing about the isolation sort of no matter where he is Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, he had that everywhere. He had that in America. He had that America being black and Harlem being gay. So I think he was just he was just used for used to it and had a lot of insight on what it felt like just to be othered or to be outside. But the weird thing about it, like I I watched, if you listen to like clips of him talking in France, or he like lived in like a super small like I think the the last place he lived in France was like kind of like a small town with like farmers. And they say when he first got there, people were kind of a little hesitant to like engage with him. But by the time he bought property there, everybody there loved him because of how, just how loving and how, I guess just outgoing and kind he was. Right. Yeah. So he writes these novels. Go Tell It on the Mountain is his first novel. Mm -hmm. Still considered maybe his masterpiece Mm -hmm. um, along with a few others. Yeah. Including his second novel, Giovanni's Room. Mm -hmm. Uh, which comes out three years later in 1956. And Giovanni's room is actually mainly white characters, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's... The deals... two main characters are white. Yeah. Yeah. He write, he writes a lot of... I feel like a lot of his main characters are, are white. 
Yeah, Go yeah. Tell It on the Mountain, it's kind of more autobiographical. Yes, yeah. But like another country, the majority of the characters, it like centers around three white characters. The beginning is like a, the beginning is one of the best things I've ever read. But like the, it's like a, uh, somebody based on like a friend of his who committed suicide. But like the rest of it is like three white characters and like that character's sister who's black. And but, it's all about their, they're like somewhat related to the character who committed suicide, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I read it a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, it's, a, it's a weird, it's yeah. a weird book. Another country's a later one. Yeah, another country's a later. Sorry, that's a tangent. No, no, no. Yeah, so, wh- yeah. which is your which is your favorite of the novels? Uh, or I guess writings in general. Uh, my favorite is probably Notes of a Native Son. Just the the section on like Harlem riots and just his anger before he left America is that's I think one of my favorite pieces of writing ever. And also just him talking about his father. That's like. That that kind of for me was always like is part partly my entry point into him, into like feeling. And the Harlem riots in 1948 were the same year, maybe even the same day that his father died of tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah. So it's like kind of uh, juxtapos- like a juxtaposition between those two things of his personal grief combined with mm-hmm. this. And it's all just an analysis of like anger. It's a really, it's a really like beautiful. Um, essay it's it's along with the same it's like the second part of him trashing Richard Wright <laughs> okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, that it's was like, his break he was like yeah he was like all right let me now, now that I'm done flaming Richard Wright um let me talk about let me talk about myself for a minute yeah so yeah notes on a native son which is kind of a collection of essays involving the Harlem riots but also um attacking Richard Wright <laughs> um, I love Richard Wright too I don't want this to be like a, a yeah Richard I've got native son right there yeah, I love that I love uh, Black Boy was like one of the first things I read, like cover yeah. to cover. So. And Richard Wright also similar to Baldwin in that it's a lot of nonfiction and fiction mm-hmm. yeah. kind of covering everything. Yeah, yeah. So in 1957, while he's living in France, he is largely inspired by photos of Dorothy Counts mm-hmm. to return to America, particularly to go to the South for the first time. Yeah. And so Dorothy Counts was one of the first students to integrate schools in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So Brown versus Board of Education three years earlier mm-hmm. saying that uh, segregated schools is unconstitutional. Yeah. But obviously the Southern states don't just like happily yeah. accept the decision. Yeah. And Dorothy Counts on her first day to school leaves the car and uh, is escorted for protection by a family friend. And there are these horrifying photos mm-hmm. of white people throwing stuff at her, mm-hmm. including rocks. Yeah. Um, and you can see the photos online. Baldwin is large, sees these photos in France and decides to come to America and write about the civil rights movement that's yeah. blossoming. Yeah, I think, yeah, he, I mean, he also, like, I think he, I think I read something where he was saying, like, he, he couldn't be a full artist while that was, like, going on. It's almost like you're ignoring the thing that's on your mind. So you have to go and like actually fully experience and like document this thing happening. And actually write and see it firsthand. Yeah. Which he does. And in the late 50s is the time that he starts to see Martin Luther King and starts Mm -hmm. to admire Martin Luther King. Yeah. Who he did greatly admire. Yeah. He gets a little bit involved in some of the groups like CORE and the SNCC. Yeah. Um, But he's never like a major like super political figure. No, not really. Aside from his writing. No, not really. Yeah, so he's more of like a, I don't know, it feels like he's the guy who like takes a step back mm-hmm. and is like just analyzing every single thing that goes on. Yeah, I think I think it's, you know, I think he also saw his role maybe as being the person to, I think 
maybe he also saw his role as being like the person to interpret like what's happening and and report it in a way that's for people for people to understand like here's what's going on here's why this is happening here's why riots are happening here's why I think I think yeah I th- I think he was he saw his role in that moment as to be to be like I'm going to be the person to interpret and to communicate what is happening to people which is also probably part of the reason why he was popular among white audiences yeah. partly because they saw him as not as militant as like Malcolm X in the Nation of Islam yeah but also he's sort of speaking to like it's not like. It, it feels like the writing, the early writing, at mm-hmm. least, like Fire Next Time, is sort of a plea to white people. Mm-hmm. Or, or it, not a plea, like, as you said, like a, kind this of is like, where we're coming from. Exactly, kind of yeah. No, it almost feels like a, like he was like the olive branch. Right. Like, this is this is why this is happening. Understand why this is happening. Know that we're doing this to save you. Like, it's not just us. Like, we're do- it's not just to save ourselves. We're doing this to save this country. Like, that's, you know. Yeah, and he even says in the Fire Next Time that, like, it's almost the greater tragedy of a racist because by having that much hate and prejudice they're they're becoming they're really the ones who become subhuman Mm -hmm. which is a weird kind of twist on it yeah man yeah that's very compelling yeah yeah no it is yeah and it's it's also like um I think there, there's. I, I think one of the beautiful things about him is that he just understood people on like a, not like a, not a heady level. Like he could communicate it with his mind and his thoughts, but like in his heart. So, I think he went through, not went through that experience, but imagined that experience. Like imagine what it was probably like for a white person in the South or whatever, like a racist white person, and pitied that point of view like pity that like you need like because his thing was you need like that becomes an identity that you need that becomes an identity that you need that serves you that you need to have somebody you need to place someone lower to you lower than you in order to feel competent or like worthy yeah and that must be the source of that must be just such intense well fear like an insecurity insecurity Yeah. yeah yeah and he talks a lot just kind of related to that about kind of history and like the way i don't know because we said like that he's so relevant now, especially mm-hmm. with like debate about like critical race theory and mm-hmm. stuff. And a lot of it has to do with the white like hanging on to how we view American history mm-hmm. and like what America means. Yeah. And not being able to admit, kind of like in that Buckley debate, that there's beyond a you know, dark side to it. Yeah. Yeah. And like what does that mean for I think I think the thing is is like thinking about like posing those questions and being like, what does that mean for you? Like, what does that mean for white people? If you, if you, like, I remember the quote, white people invented the nigger, so they have to figure out why. Like you have to, you have to know why you invented that, Right. you know? So I think with, I think he knew that without that, people feel lost, without that identity, without white supremacy, it's just lost in whatever form, whether it's like conscious or not. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a sense of like, losing identity and like where are you when you lose that yeah yeah and a fear of that so in terms of him getting kind of politically involved maybe the most the most clear example of that is a meeting that he has with a few other people but it the two main players are him and robert kennedy Mm -hmm. and baldwin's pretty critical of jfk in terms of how he handles the civil rights movement and just kind of being slow to civil rights legislation. Yeah. He meets with Robert Kennedy and expresses these uh, kind of grievances. And during this meeting that happens in New York, 
there's a guy there named Jerome Smith who was a black man who was beaten and jailed in Mississippi. And Smith is just kind of telling his story. And Kennedy, I think, sort of like gets uh, insecure about the fact that these people are saying mm-hmm. that that his administration is not doing enough, or his brother's administration is not yeah. doing enough. Yeah. So it's like a tense kind of meeting. Yeah. Having said that, pretty soon after that, JFK publicly proposes what will become the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. of 1964. Yeah. So I don't know if that moved the needle at all or yeah. like helped persuade him, yeah. but it's possible. It's possible. I mean, I think there's, I don't know, whoever knows why stuff happens other than like pressure from like a bunch of different points. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's, Especially on the presidential level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because the whole world is just seeing turmoil on TV. And I think, that, you know, it just, it, in a way it doesn't look good. And especially Americans, like Americans do not do well with discomfort. Like, right. Like we're not, we're not, we do not do well with discomfort. So I think just seeing the images on TV and seeing boycotts and protests and like all the time, and people are like, I just want to watch Howdy Doody. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> approval rating. <laughs> approval rating sinking. It's, America wants to watch American bandstand. This is you know not I mean? fun. Yeah. Exactly. So I think I think he was like, I think there's I think there's a lot of, you know, pressure in general. But yeah, I think it, it doesn't it it definitely helps to for him to is that is that the same thing where I think it's RFK who like has the thing where he like oh a black man could be president one day. I think you yeah and Baldwin just shits on. <laughs> so RFK he do, he doesn't even just say a black man could be pr- come president. Yeah. He gives a date. He says in forty years, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. plausible yeah, yeah. that a black man could become president. <laughs> yeah. And Baldwin's like the reception. He's like, all right, it's one thing for one person to say this, but yeah. he's like the reception. The, or the idea behind it is white people patting themselves on the back, mm-hmm. being like, you know what? Four, <laughs> decades. <laughs> Four decades from now, while all these people, while all these other people starve and die and are murdered <laughs> and lynched and beaten by cops. In all fairness to RFK, <laughs> yeah. he was almost right on the dot. Yeah, true. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's fucking like, true. I will say that. I will say that. It's almost like it was planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it, yeah, that is, uh, but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, it's just so many things that just didn't look good for them at the time. So yeah, it, it definitely helps. And going back to your point about, well, it certainly applies in the past five years, but when something is televised, when something's available for everyone, Selma mm-hmm. in 1965, the violence that happens uh, during the march leads almost directly to the Voting Rights Act yeah. being passed under yeah. Johnson. Yeah. And Johnson saying, we shall overcome yeah. to Congress. Yeah. So... It is those moments, especially when they're televised, that like can actually move. I don't want to say move the needle, but can like yeah. lead to stuff. Yeah. And without them, it's like, would any? <laughs> what would have happened? Yeah. A wild thing though is James Baldwin actually like hated the Voting Rights Act and thought that it was it didn't go far enough in terms of like not being able to be changed, which is, you know, not being able to be overturned or changed or being like fucked with, and you know that's kind of what's happening now. Which is, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so a big story with Baldwin. uh, Baldwin ends up dying. He dies of stomach cancer in 1987. So he's 1924 and 1987. I mean, you can't really talk about Baldwin without really going through like every moment of the civil rights history in this time period because he commented on everything that was going on. And 
if you look just on Wikipedia, civil rights movement, it dates 1968 as the end of it, mm-hmm. which is the same year that Martin Luther King dies. Yeah. And it feels like almost like with Reconstruction after the Civil War, mm-hmm. Baldwin is very much of the belief where it's like this failed. Yeah. Like or, or I mean, incomplete at the at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's always I feel like America is always uh, always uh, Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back. Like it's always like the same. It's always like the same shit over and over and over again. It's like this, this like moments of hope and change to quote Obama, and then and then yeah, and then white supremacy like comes back and it's like hold on, wait a second, <laughs> like you know. And I think I think he's somebody who knew history and just recognized that pattern and was like, okay, this this isn't enough. It's not going to be enough. And as the civil rights movement changes over the course of the '60s, so. Malcolm X is, uh, you know, one of the most prominent figures along with King in mm-hmm. the early 60s. He, of course, gets assassinated. Mm-hmm. And you could kind of trace a direct line from him to sort of the Black Power movement mm-hmm. in the late 60s. Yeah. And figures like Stokely Car- Carmichael. Yeah. Who th- those like people of the Black Power movement, they they kind of don't like Baldwin no, as much. No, especially Eldridge Cleaver. Eldridge Cleaver does not. Eldridge Cleaver is also like mad homophobic, but he doesn't like, he thinks that James Baldwin wants to be white is like his like main complaint. Like Stokely and like Bobby Seale, I think they don't like how, like they're more, they're just more militant and they're more about like self-defense and defending yourself and, and protecting your neighborhood. And I think Baldwin kind of, Baldwin also saw that as kind of just being like the wrong way. So he wanted to maybe protect and like guide them a little bit more, like as being an elder, but they kind of just didn't respect him. Right. Yeah. But Baldwin very much like, even though we think of him more as the olive branch guy, yeah, he doesn't like he, it kind of like what you were talking about with him putting himself in a white racist shoes. Yeah. He puts himself in like their shoes. Like yeah. he doesn't, he by no means is like dismissive no. of any of those. No, guys. he's not at all. Cause he, he knows where the anger comes from. Right. He knows where the rage comes from. He's just, I think Baldwin was just more of like everybody more of like a, a type of person like race does race doesn't exist, but racism does. And I think he's kind of saw the black power movement as like, digging further into like separatism right which of course it i mean it is but it's based on the point that we tried exactly we tried everything else yeah i mean stokely kwame Torre was part of snick you know what i mean so right he was like right there when it was all michael who a lot of people would say is not the founder of the black power movement but one of them yeah if you had to put more yeah one name Was right. Was like, dude. Yeah. Was a Martin Luther King guy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah he was part of SNCC, and yeah. then yeah, he he's, he was marched to Selma. He was like, "Fuck this. This is <laughs> this is ridiculous. We're getting beat over the head. These people don't give a fuck. Let's <laughs> let's start something else." And of course, in 1968, which is kind of like one of the most pivotal years in American history, uh, RFK is shot. Yeah. MLK is shot. And there's also the uh, riots at the Democratic National Convention, mm-hmm. which is like one of the most famous, one of the many examples of police brutality that is caught on camera. Yeah. And Nixon is elected. Yeah. Who is running on law and order. Yeah. Which, of course, is a yep. uh, dog whistle slogan that you see over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so that is seen as kind of like the end of at least that era of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And 
Baldwin writes novels afterwards. One of the most famous ones now is If Beale Street Could Talk, mm-hmm. which is 1974, and Barry Jenkins made it into a movie a few years ago. Yeah. And, but a lot of his novels, at least by like white critics, are they're not uh, received as well as they were 10 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also think the novels got angrier. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be why. I think that's the yeah. thing. I think they got, they got angrier, man. I think it's just like a darker, a much darker time for him because obviously i mean literally he had three of his best friends killed rfk dies it's like nixon gets elected he like left and went to france he was like i'm bouncing yo like he's like this is this is too much i'm dipping so i think i think i think the writing just got angrier and less probably less hopeful too he tried to kill himself so I, it's just it's just they it didn't make people feel good <laughs> to be honest but it's like i think i think he was also like y'all don't deserve to fucking feel good like, yeah, I, like, I mean, I reread Fire Next Time. I read it once in high school, and mm-hmm. then I reread it a couple of days ago. It's Fire Next Time is really short, and it's like a hundred pages. It's yeah. basically just a long essay yeah. or, or two essays. Yeah, one to his nephew. Yeah, then, yeah, and the one to his nephew is like so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, the right, so Fire Next Time begins with like a ten-page essay, which is basically just him writing a letter to his nephew about being black in America. Yeah, yeah. and but then the second half of it, which is the bulk of it, is about. A lot of religion stuff, like mm-hmm. about growing up Christian, about yeah. meeting Elijah Muhammad. But the book is ultimately, I think, hopeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it ends with it ends with with like the most like come together. It's like I think it ends with it's like some I'm butchering it, but it's like if us the socially was it if us the socially conscious blacks and and the socially conscious whites can like come together, blah blah blah. Like it, I think that's literally like the last paragraph, like right. how he sums it up. He sums it up in a very very hopeful way. And I think that talking about like Baldwin's writing being referenced a lot recently, I think a lot of people are going now to the discovering the later stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a reason why If Beale Street Could Talk is the novel that was made yeah. into a movie as opposed to one of the earlier ones. Yeah. Having said that, Jenkins softens the ending. Yeah. I've in, never, I've never read the, the book. I've only, I've only seen the movie. So not to give anything away, but the book is, as you kind of alluded to, like way more bleak okay. in the end. I mean, the ending I mean the ending in this one's kind of bleak. I mean, the movie's kind of bleak too. But Yeah, there's one... Like, okay, the woman, I won't give it okay, away. Okay, okay, <laughs> but it's, okay, I'll read it. Trust me, it's... Uh, okay. It, it's, it, okay. It is darker, if you can believe it. Okay, it is cool. even darker. <laughs> yeah, because I, like, I was like, I mean, I guess the ending in the movie is like not... <laughs> Because I was, I was I didn't like, mean to imply that I was the movie still, is like a rom com. Because I was like, I was like, the end of the movie is pretty fucked up, man. Because he didn't do it, and he's still in jail. <laughs> it's child's play compared to what the ending. Oh shit! Okay. The book is. Holy shit! All right. Cool. Book is right. <laughs> <laughs> the movie is a nursery rom compared to. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he keeps writing. Uh, throughout the 70s and to the 80s there are like interviews of him when he's older Mm -hmm. sees the election of ronald reagan in 1980 which baldwin was like very Mm anti-reagan when reagan was governor in the 60s and 70s and says like we can't have this guy be you know Mm -hmm. basically so when he dies in the middle of reagan's presidency i he's not a happy no man no no he's i don't yeah no he didn't die i mean i i think I mean the. I think it's. I think he went through just so much, man. It's like I. I think it. It was kind of a miracle that he was able to write as much as he did. I, I just know his childhood wasn't perfect. Far from perfect. He grew up like incredibly poor. 
he goes to France. He never, he never like has like a partner or anything that he's like anybody that he's like in love with. So I think he's like intensely lonely often. He right, he tried to kill himself three times. You know? And I think that he's killing just, himself three times, one time was right after Martin Luther King dies, mm-hmm. and and that's just kind of a, as you said, just just the insane, you know, just lack of hope. Yeah. But also, I think uh, he was depressed in suicide attempts also because of personal... I think he got heartbroken yeah. like many, many times in his life. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I don't think... I think so, like, just everything that he's gone through, like, from personal and then, soci- like, on a societal level, and then him being so close to these things is probably also another heartbreak for him to, to go through all this shit in the in the 50s and 60s and then you see you see nixon get elected and then you see fucking ronald reagan get elected the ex-governor of california you know like that's that that would be enough to i mean he was i think toward the end of his life he drank way too much and and smoked cigarettes but yeah he just i think he he kind of suffered kind of a slow death yeah and with reagan there would be there would be a few things in terms of not not including Reagan's actual presidency and what he did during his actual yeah. presidency, but leading up to it, I mean, Reagan was against the Civil Rights Act in yeah. 1964, and one other kind of major thing that I think most Americans, particularly African Americans, won't forget is that Reagan announced his candidacy in the same county of mm-hmm. the Mississippi burning mm-hmm. um, events, yeah. and. You know, the speech was about states' rights, yeah. which, again, can be seen as a, yeah. you know... A little uh, bit of a dog whistle. Dog whistle. Yeah. yeah, that's... I mean, that was, you know, that was... Uh, I mean, that's part of the reason why the Black Panthers were created, because of police brutality in California. Like, they wanted to protect their neighborhoods from because the, there's no accountability for cops, so they wanted to protect their... And Reagan was the leading force behind, like, shutting that shit down. Like, no, you can't carry... All of a sudden, you can't... You couldn't open carry in California, like... He was like directly opposing just just things that they were trying to do in order to keep themselves safe. Yeah. And it was in California that the Black Panthers, um, a few members went to the state capitol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Over exactly Arms. that over yeah. over Reagan's attempted restriction. Yeah. Of guns, which, you know, conservatives, you know, usually yeah. are the pro gun. Exactly. Yeah. But when, when black people do it, it's, you know, it's a different it's, story. It's a problem. Yeah. It's like, whoa, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> hey, maybe, maybe we're too loose with these gun laws. <laughs> I think that would be heartbreaking for anybody on so many levels, man. You had all your friends die. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot. So I, I do want to ask you. So when I first asked you uh, who you'd pick, you named yeah. three names. You yeah. named uh, Ida B. Wells, yeah. Muhammad Ali, and James Baldwin. Yeah. And, I was like two or three. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'd love to talk about the first two again, but yeah. two of the three uh, had already been chosen. Yeah. So, uh, so why why is James Baldwin in the top three? Why you know? Uh, well, for me, James Baldwin was like I didn't read a lot as a kid. I like didn't you know you get I read a bunch of shit in school and I hated reading because I would have to read the stuff that I would have to read for school right. So I didn't really read that much. Um, but then once I moved here, somebody mentioned, I don't know, I don't know how I, how I found it or who recommended it to me, but somebody recommended that I read The Fire next time. I think maybe I was working on a monologue from the Amen Corner, one of Baldwin's plays. And I read The Fire next time and I, specifically like his stuff about religion, I really related to a lot of it. And I think that was, he just became my favorite writer for a long time because I'd never, not never, like I, I related a lot to like Black Boy by Richard Wright, 
but like that was maybe like one of the first times where I was like, oh shit, this is literally like my thoughts. Did you, uh, did you grow up Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also like kind of religious or? Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you have a similar, if you don't mind my asking, a similar experience in terms of like getting a little disillusioned with it or is it? Um, not quite, a little a disillusioned, more so disillusioned with like church and like religion, I think. Um, sure. more so, more so religion than, uh, than I guess whether or not there is a God. Yeah. Faith. I think, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just, it's just, a. it became like a restrictive thing and, and a lot of shame involved in it. And, uh, just seemed like something that was always, I don't know. It, it seems like it always just seemed like something that people were using like as a shield for, to cover something else. And then not acting like, uh. I mean, you know, yeah. the, the tenets of Christianity exactly, do unto yeah. others. That's, you know, those yeah. are great messages. Exactly. Yeah. But you see so many people who aren't the people who do that. I know who do like they're very, they're some of the most beautiful people that I know. And I do love, love that, love that fact. But the, the idea, like there's only one God and we're all guessing, <laughs> we're all in this <laughs> guessing game to figure out which one is right. I think was something that I, I guess like my initial point of like contention where i was like what the f that doesn't really make sense like we're right. all a lottery for eternity like that doesn't really make sense um but i think i think also the stuff that he was saying about basically using it especially being black using it kind of like as a as like a shield or like a cloak to feel better about yourself or not being what white people say that you are you know right. what i mean and also like the using it to soothe yourself like oh yeah there's there's uh there's a promised land in heaven even though here sucks <clears throat> right it almost feels like giving up on some level yeah a little bit that it's and that was a criticism of Martin Luther King right yeah. that he's if you turn the other cheek that well first of all that white people that that the most brutal of the white people are not going to be no, moved or care yeah. yeah um but then also this idea of like it's how do you where's the line between passive resistance and giving up exactly yeah like su like yeah i it's like a like suffer now to to be you know to 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 feel good or to feel bliss later it's right. like the promise of something um later on but also yeah like using it to not to feel like oh i'm i'm i think this is like a deep down subconscious thing and i think he was like hitting at it but like I live in this, I live in squalor, all around me is squalor, and this, latching onto this thing makes me better than the squalor, I guess, yeah. Even, it's like, right, but yeah. without doing anything practical to get out of it. Yeah, kinda, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, not even, not even just the, not even just the doing anything to get out of it. It's just using, using something as like a, not self-soothing, but like to, to not deal with like the actual issues that are, that are there, I think is where I kind of, where I, I jumped into it and, and related. Cause I think, yeah, I think he was talking about like a, a low, a low self-worth and a low self-esteem that came from living, being black in the world. And I think he was saying that religion creates this thing, this shield, this cover that, that covers that like insecurity. And then you don't deal with the shit that's under it. Right. You know, that it, like in fire next time he talks about like, either you go to the streets or you go to, or you go to church. And those like a pimp goes like, whose little boy are you? And the same thing the pastor said to him, like, whose little boy are you? Right. And I think that's, I think it's, it's both things are come from like, uh, like a deep down, like insecurity or a deep down, like low sense of self-worth, like selling, 
working for a pimp or being a pimp like comes from like a, a low self-worth and the same thing with being like not religious but being like overly reliant on religion yeah yeah and, and i he, saw a lot of that growing up so I, that was my entry point oh that's awesome yeah yeah or well, not awesome <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> but it's great to find a writer who speaks to you exactly I mean, that's yeah. always a great thing yeah i just i just explained that in the most convoluted way but no yeah, not at all no no, no. So. I, yeah. Um, do you have anything? Uh, Sometimes thoughts are as hard. We, uh, as we wrap up, <laughs> is there uh, is there anything you want to plug? Or uh, uh, when's this come out? Uh, Tuesday. Oh shit! Oh well, tomorrow, <laughs> Wednesday, December eighth, I'm doing a, a half an hour at the Crane Theater. Oh, nice. Where's yeah. the Crane Theater? Oh, uh, on East Fourth. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on. And, thank you for having and me, man. Talking about James Baldwin. Yeah. All right. All right.